Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Wednesday, September 19, 2012. This is episode 982 of the Survival Podcast, and this is kind of something we haven't really done anything like this in a long time. I'm going to call it a freestyle day on the Survival Podcast. I'm just going to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you about some current events. I'm going to talk to you about some recent occurrences with the Survival Podcast. I'm going to explain the why uh, behind some of the things I do. I'm going to tell you about some upcoming changes with the show, some upcoming changes with some sponsorships, and uh, some plans for the future. And I think I need to do that once in a while. I think it's important. And since we missed Monday because I was away and in travel, um, we didn't do kind of a listener feedback show. There will be some current event stuff mixed in with this, a little bit on QE Forever and on the uh, protests overseas and, and some things like that, just to kind of bring a little bit of that element into it. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. That is, they are the first people. This is Jack. We believe in what you're doing. We know it's going somewhere special. We want to be part of it. We want to be an official sponsor. I didn't even have a sponsorship program when I got that contact from Vic Rontala over there. And I built our current sponsorship program that we'll talk a bit about in the main part of today's show when he offered to be a sponsor because I wanted to do it differently. And he passed the uh, kind of the uh, the high bar that we set with Flying Colors. He's taking care of the audience now for going on four years. And everything you can think of for your prepping needs you will find at Safe Castle Royal. Uh, you can find his website. The, the easiest way to remember his website is go to prepare.pro, P-R-O, or, but the best way to find all our sponsors, honestly, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the right-hand margin. Remember, for those of you that are part of the Member Support Brigade, he is a discount lifetime membership program. You get big discounts on everything he sells for the rest of your life once you're a member in it. It costs $49. People buy it every day, just kind of like a Sam's Club membership, only you pay once. The difference here, though, is if you are a member of my support brigade, you get his membership for free. That's a huge level of support. Please remember that when making your decisions about where to buy your next prepper stuff from. Check out also today BackyardFoodProduction.com. I did a whole lot yesterday on uh, Feudal Japan and what Feudal Japan was like and the huge agricultural component of that. Basically, anybody with a little bit of land turned their backyard into a food production machine. You want to learn how to do that, and you want to learn how to do that with modern and old techniques merged together, get Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD called Growing Your Groceries. You'll find it at Backyard Food Production. Dot com. She's also been a very long-term sponsor. I expect she'll be around for a long time to come with the show because that's just uh, she really, I think, really enjoys being a sponsor of this show and really enjoys helping you guys out, answering your questions. And we'll definitely have to get her back on the show again sometime soon because she makes a great interview. Next, check out TSP Copper. We have some really cool copper coins. Uh, I'll tell you what, they're awesome and uh, lots of great patterns and designs, and you get a discount if you're an MSB member as well. Last but not least, do consider joining the MSB, which is the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you support the show at about $0.20 cents an episode. It comes out to $50 a year. Again, if you get the Safe Castle discount membership, effectively your first year is a buck. That's a pretty good discount. There's a whole slew of other discount programs in there for you as well. So uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show. And let's start out with the, uh, the sponsorship change because there's some important stuff that you guys need to know. Because I am so rigorous about how we vet a sponsor and because I'm so emphatic about a sponsorship being a personal endorsement, 
I feel that when changes come, you need to know the why behind them. You need to know who's going to be changing and why and how that's going to affect us going forward. So the first change I want to tell you about today is a change that has nothing to do with anybody being upset, nothing to do with any conflict of interest, nothing like that. Uh, but I have made some changes to my rates. I'm charging a little bit more because when I started this program, most of the sponsors were given a rate when the show had about 5,000 listeners. The show now has about 45,000 listeners, and most of the sponsors are still paying the same rate that they were back when we had 5,000 listeners. I don't know anybody in media that would do anything like that. I do it because I don't view sponsorship as my main income source. I view my membership program as my main income source. So sponsors are very special to me, and I believe that they're special to the audience. They're, 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 it's a totally different model I think anybody else has ever done. I see when I sell advertising on my site, that is a service to the audience more than just a way for me to earn some income. I do earn some income off of it. I've raised the rates way less than I could. If, if I wanted to, I could charge as much as I get for all the sponsorships combined. I could probably get that every two months from one sponsor if I went to a few big companies. I could probably make ten times what I do on sponsorship now. I won't do it because I like dealing with small companies. That said, the rate increase is enough that one small company who has a very small assortment of gear can't justify the increase in the rates. And that company's MERS Radio. And I will continue to run his, his sponsorship through the end of the month because that's his existing contract. When I gave him the new program, he said, I just can't financially do that. But I want to tell you something. If, if you want MERS gear, if you want security and communications put together, Rob Belleville and MERS-radio.com, so it's MERS-radio.com, will carry my endorsement until there's a reason for it not to. So while they won't be an official sponsor anymore, I will still endorse them and I will still mention them from time to time uh, because I really think doing business with Rob is a great thing and I think MERS gear is a great thing. And I'll continue as I need more gear to get my MERS gear from Rob. And I, I cannot endorse him highly enough. Just if you're going to run a business, there's certain financial aspects of it that have to be met. And I can't say, well, everybody else is going to pay X, but I'll let you pay Y because you can't afford it. Uh, that would be like you go to the store and go, I really want ribeye. Uh, but I need it to be the price of ground chuck. Can you do that for me? Because I can't afford ribeye. The store's going to say no. I'm going to say no. And I've basically been selling ribeye for the price of ground chuck for a very long time. And I'm still selling now. I'm selling like ribeye for like the price of like ground sirloin. Right. I'm still not charging what I could. So that was just a financial decision. There's no bad blood there. And I do still highly endorse Rob with MERS Radio. I just want to be clear on that because you'll see his banner go away at the end and come back. He will be replaced. We've already got a replacement lined up for him with Kelly Grindel with Survival Gear Bags. He's been doing a 10% discount for Members Brigade members uh, for about two years, so he's a known quantity. We just had an issue with a customer that tried to order, tried to get their discount, and when they when they got the free shipping, it took their discount off. It was a mess up with Yahoo Shopping Cart. Kelly fixed it in about 10 seconds. He has a great assortment of gear, great pricing, great service, and he does a good job with fulfillment. So uh, I'm happy that he passed the uh, the muster when we put him in front of the ad council. They got a week to tear his company apart. They couldn't find anything negative. Uh, so Kelly will be joining us at the beginning of next year. So that's kind of a happy thing other than I'm sad to see Rob go, but there's no nothing negative at all there. I want to be very clear on that. Next one, not so much, but not real bad, but I do need to tell you the truth about what happened. Silver and Gold Shop's banner is no longer on our site. So I am no longer taking Silver and Gold Shop. Mary Beth Maidmont is a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Um, 
I gave her a refund for the full month of September and all of October, even though I had advertised for her in September for a period, a prorated refund of her contract, and told her that I could no longer accept her as a sponsor. She did nothing wrong to the audience. She ran her company the way she's always run her company. And if you want to order silver and gold products from her tomorrow, I wouldn't tell you not to. I, I think her company itself is run very well. I think she takes care of people, and I think she does things in a great way. So you ask, well, why can you not take her as a sponsor anymore? About a week and a half ago, I got an email from Mary Beth promoting a program called Silver Snowball, which I want to be fair, is not part of Silver. It's a third product. So it would be like me sending you a link to Amazon.com as an affiliate, basically. Silver Snowball was marketed as not being network marketing, not being multi-level marketing. It's not. It's unilevel marketing. But it functions just like a network marketing company. You tell your friends and family, they go to your website, they buy silver, and then they get silver. right? So if I told you guys, hey, sign up with my site and buy silver every month, every time you buy a half ounce of silver, I get a quarter ounce of silver. Okay, There's a problem there. Silver margins are very low. And it smelled bad right from the beginning. When I first read it, I thought, well, this is great. If this is going to be something like for every 10 ounces of silver you sell, you get a half an ounce, I can probably make quite a bit of silver every month, give another service to audience, that type of thing. I, I thought, maybe I'll do this. But when I saw the payout, I went, I already know something's wrong. So I go look at it, and by the time you're done with shipping and everything else, you would be paying $44 for a one-half ounce coin of silver so that the person that recommended you do it could get a quarter ounce. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you guys could go out and buy about an ounce and a quarter ounce and a half for that together if that's really what it was all about. So this is about front-loading an expense into a program specifically to create a payout. And when I called her on it, she said, look, I'd rather sever my relationship with these people than, than lose my sponsorship with TSP. And I said, well, it's don't do that. It's too late for that now. You've already done this. You've already sent this to your entire customer base a huge portion of which I know are, are members of my, my audience. And now I am now, as, as somebody who's emphatically represented you for three years, associated with this, and I think this is a ripoff. Let me take this to my ad council. I'm emotionally attached to this. I'm not going to make an emotional decision. Let's see what they have to say. So I put it in front of them, and most of them didn't like it. They really didn't like it at all. And... An email chain continued to go back between me and Mary Beth, and I continued to let the ad council know what was going on. And basically, it was her defending this program and saying, well, you want to control everybody. And my response was, I don't want to control you. If I wanted to control you, I would have said, drop this program or leave. I told you specifically, don't change it because of my opinion, but I don't think I want my brand associated with this. And in the end, that's what it was. I cannot have a sponsor who is asking me and members of my audience to use your relationships to ask your contacts, your family, your friends, and people that trust you to pay three times the value of something to feed a payout in a program that probably won't work for most people. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. And even though it's not technically network marketing or multi-level marketing because it's one level versus six or seven or whatever, the reality is it has the same potential to do harm And to be fair to network marketing companies, the price of the product is overinflated beyond what most network marketing companies do. I can't be associated with that. So while I think Mary Beth will continue to do a good job for her customers with SilverAndGoldShop.com, that choice and that choice to expose the people that trust me to that program 
cost of her sponsorship. There's no going back. There's no way that's ever going to change. I'm sorry, and that's just the way it is. Because I care about my audience. It was a difficult decision because personally, I love the woman to death. I really do. I think she's a wonderful human being. I think this is a poor decision, and I think it's a poor decision that reflects poorly on business judgment, and I do not recommend uh, people in an official capacity specifically on such a, you know, there's so many people that want to be a sponsor of this show. I, I mean, I'm not... It's not a big head or anything. I'm telling you guys, God honest. There, I get an email a week. Can I please sponsor your podcast? I'm sorry, there's no room at the end. There's a small group that's allowed to have this, this privilege, not of being associated with me, but having access to you in this capacity. It, to me, it's a very high honor to be put in front of this community of 45,000 like-minded individuals who really care about their nation, care about their families, care about their communities, and are doing the best that they can to be given one of those spots. And when you do something I find completely unethical, I'm sorry, you're out. So who's in? Um, right now they're having their banner made up. They've been approved. Uh, I, I think we need a silver and gold supplier in the mix. I really do. I went out and a few months ago found someone I already thought was doing some of the best pricing in the industry. On top of the great pricing, I got them to give you guys a discount. Uh, on purchases over $300 or purchases over $1,000. And what the margins are working at, any discount is a huge discount. They're part of the member support brigade. And, of course, the company is jmbullion.com. I've recommended Appmex for a long time for larger purchases. I've always seen Mary Beth as kind of a boutique dealer. Her prices are somewhat high when you look at per coin. And I'm talking like on a roll of 20 coins, 80 bucks over a, you know a dealer like, like Appmex or Monix or something like that. JM Bullion, great reputation, reasonable assortment of product, and if silver bars are silver bars. So if you don't have 20 of them, I don't care. I want to know what the price is. About a dollar a unit under Atmex pricing. Plus $300 purchases and higher, you get a discount. Plus they have, if you want to do a monthly purchase program, they have a legitimate one. JM Bullion has a monthly purchase program that works like this. You say, I want to invest $100 a month. This is the product I want to invest in. And if that means you can get two of them for $88, then that's what you'll get that month, right? And then your $12 just doesn't get spent. So that you will control a cap limit, and they send you as many items as they can for that price. I think that's incredibly fair. I think that's a great way to automate your silver investing. I think they're a great company. I'm really impressed with the ownership of the company and their commitment to excellence. I'm impressed with the fact that I haven't had any complaints about them since we put them in the MSB about a month ago. And I think it's going to be a great addition to the lineup, and I'm happy to welcome them. And again, I don't want to tell you never to buy from silverandgoldshop.com again. I think they have a few items that they're the only source of, and I think they're cool. And if you went and bought that, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But recommending Silver Snowball and saying that they, they built this special half-ounce freaking coin in conjunction with them and strong association with this program, I, I, it can't be in the special fold, the, the 12 slots for sponsorship. I'm sorry. So that's, that's why that change is coming. There may be some other changes coming to sponsorships in the future that I'll announce as they happen. Right now, if you see a change... Before I tell you why, just assume it was simply a financial decision. Because right now, the majority of uh, 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 sponsors that are going to renew in the next month or two have already accepted the new rates. They're in good standing. So this is this silver and gold thing is the only one 
uh, so far that's kind of for a reason other than just a business decision. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying not to buy coins from her, but I'm saying she doesn't get the heavy recommendation uh, that is the honor of being recommended to you guys as an official sponsor because of her association with this program. All right, let's go on to something a little bit uh, different and maybe a little bit more entertaining. Um, yesterday I did a show on life in basically feudal Japan, uh, specifically the last era of uh, feudal Japan, known as the Edo period, uh, which is from mainly from a book called Just Enough Lessons in Green Living from Traditional Japan. And I thought it was a fascinating book. I thought it was a great episode. I think most people liked it. But I got two polar opposite responses from people who were critical of it. I got people emailing me, and one specific person that commented on the blog, saying, these people were slaves. I can't believe you would have anything to do with this, stuff like that, you know. And the, the blog commenter didn't go that far. But, you know, they were slaves. Their life could just be taken by their Lord at any time. If you want to know what freedom is, look how the Vikings live, right, you know. And I, and I got a lot more responses like that which I found completely ironic because I spent a good portion of the interview saying, here's something they did I didn't agree with. As a libertarian, I feel that this is not the way to be, but we can still learn from what worked there. But yet I still get this like knee-jerk response from people that I guess, I don't know, maybe they, they live with a radio plugged into their brain, permanently tuned into Alex Jones. I don't know. Whatever. But the ironic thing there is, look at how the Vikings did. You know the Vikings took slaves during some of their expeditions? You know, life wasn't all wonderful under Viking leadership. Just because they had this one place that would be kind of an ideal of libertarianism in one location at one time for one period of time doesn't mean that the whole thing was absolutely a bastion of liberty uh, at a time where whoever could hire the biggest, meanest hired goons got to impose their will on other people. So you didn't even get that right. But the whole thing about slavery, here's an interesting thing about slavery if you actually know history. Japan only had sanctioned official slavery very early in its organized uh, governments. And it kind of phased out pretty quick, and then it was practiced unofficially. So you could be my slave, everybody would know you're my slave, but the government really didn't enforce it, but they didn't get in the way of it, all the way up until, well, the beginning of the Edo period. During the Edo period, Japan, and this is the 1600s, Uh, early 1600s, 1603 if I remember right from yesterday, outlawed slavery officially, saying there could be no slave. Now, it didn't mean that the individual was respected or in any way treated the way that they would be within a true republic, but slavery was officially outlawed. So the statement that they were slaves is factually wrong. Just factually wrong. And in contrast, the United States government, we didn't become enlightened enough to outlaw sanctioned slavery until the 1850s, and that took a war of brother killing brother to make happen. So maybe we shouldn't be so condescending of people that lived you know, 600 years ago and figured out how to be self-sufficient with less than one acre per capita per person. Maybe we could say there are some things we can learn from that even if we don't agree with it at all. That was my entire point yesterday. So it kind of shocked me when I got responses from some people that I would consider progressive socialists that were upset that when I presented it, I kept influencing it with my libertarian ideals. I got one guy that commented on the blog. This guy's great. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, except that he was upset that I... Uh, here, here, let me read a little bit. After listening to it, I found many of the sustainability examples you provided to be very interesting, but I think that many of the bigger picture points you try to make were lost in imposing your libertarian ideology over a society in which such ideology simply does not exist. 
That's not what I was doing. I was saying, like, here's how you could take what they're doing and what worked of what they're doing and leave all their oppressive crap behind and bring it forward into a libertarian ideal and still use what worked. But this is, this is the one that's just, I answered his comment with one word, bullshit, and then explained it. I'll explain it here. But listen to this. Lastly, you seem to exhibit a split personality on the subject of community and remaining in place. At one point, you started talking about the need for personal mobility and the ability to move from one place to another as being the foundation of a republic, a point you've made repeatedly on your show. Then at the end, you talk about the need to start building houses with the intention of dying in them years down the line like our grandparents did. You can't have it both ways. Let me just read you my response to that little statement there. Let me respond to that with one word, bullshit. Our grandparents indeed had both the ability to move at will in a republic and chose mostly to build a home to live in for life. Yes, you can have it both ways. It is about values, and that's what we've lost in this nation, our core values. Communities should have to compete for the absolute honor of having a family choose to live there their entire life. Quite a libertarian ideal, don't you think? So what I'm saying there, if I'm not already clear, is that I do think it would be great if Americans would once again start building a home and turning it into a homestead instead of buying a house and moving up and moving up and moving up and just seeing their house as a temporary domicile. But that can't be done through the imposition of will of government saying thou shalt stay where thy art which is pretty much how this class system created this dynamic in feudal Japan. In other words, there's benefits to it, no doubt. But the benefits are trumped by the oppressive heavy hand of government holding somebody into a class system so that they end up there. So how do you make this, how do you have it both ways? Well, one, you get government out of the equation as much as possible. Two, you restore the values of America that actually value true values, that value community, that value Uh, a neighborhood, that value a neighbor, that value where you live, that see your house as a home versus an investment. You restore those values, but you don't do it through collusion. You don't do it through containment. You do it by simply extorting the values and letting them compete in the marketplace of ideas the way that a libertarian always would say to do anything. But there's another competition that goes on there, isn't there? If I want, if I am the mayor of a small town, or just a community leader in some way, maybe I am in, in my church and I want more people to come to this community because I know that if I bring a certain number of people in, X percent will be Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Jewish or Buddhist. I don't care what church or temple you're part of, but you, that's your thought process. So you want to make this a better place to live so that it'll grow and along with it your organization will grow or a business has the same viewpoint. Or simply families that already live there say, we'd like more neighbors. There's this undeveloped land out here. It's, it's not really going to hurt anything if people build some homes there. And we'd like good people to move in and be part of our community. In any of those viewpoints, it should be in, incumbent upon that community, that group of people, to make that place attractive so that people will want to settle there. Versus you will go here because this is what you're entitled to. So that's what I was trying to get across yesterday. Now, the bigger thing that a couple people were pissed uh, by comment and more by, trust me, a lot. You see a comment, 20 people emailed me with the same crap. Just know that. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's, that's pretty much the ratio. So people were pissed 
that I look at this, this bastion of socialistic utopia and had to in inject my crazy libertarianism in it. Uh, here's the thing. If you were a socialist presenting this, I'd expect you to extol the socialistic virtues of it. And I would expect you to say this is how they could have improved the things that maybe people were given too much freedom for. Because that's where your worldview is. I am a libertarian. I am a minarchist libertarian. The day I said, hi, this is Jack Spierko, and this is episode one of the Survival Podcast, I was a minarchist libertarian. The day I do 1,000, the day I do 2,000, the day I do 5,000, I will be a minarchist libertarian. Of course, everything I do comes through the lens of libertarianism and minarchism. Of course it does. It's who I am. And this is the bigger point that I want to make to you guys today. And I want to start out with something that's going to seem like I'm segueing away from it, but I am going to come right back to it. I do a lot of these self-reliance expos and other times when I get out and meet people. Sometimes a big group. Sometimes just somebody says, I'm passing through town. Can we grab a beer? And I'll say, come by the house and we'll have a steak on the deck. Or I'll go down and meet them at the local brew house or whatever. Okay, And I meet people all the time. I, 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 can't, I can't even really explain to you how public I make myself available. I really do. People come through town and say, I was going to call you, but I didn't because I was afraid. Don't be afraid. Call me. I want to meet you. And the biggest compliment that I get, whether publicly or privately, after such meetings, whether large or small, is this. And I just got one from Backwoods Engineer, and I'm so grateful to hear it. Thank you for saying it. Jack is the same person when you meet him in private as he is on the air. That's, that is the biggest compliment I can receive. I like when people say nice things about me. I think most people do, unless you have a self-loathing problem. And I think that, that that's great when I hear you did a great presentation or you gave me a great answer or you're really smart or whatever. I love hearing that. And again, I think most people that don't have a self-loathing problem, as long as it's not flattery of excess, you know, if it's an honest statement about something you do positive, it's nice to hear. I think we all like to hear it. But the one that makes me smile the one that really makes me feel like, yes, you're doing it the right way, is when people say Jack is the same guy. He's always the same guy. It's not like he's on or off. He is who he is. And if you talk to him over a beer, one-on-one, -on -one, talk to him in a group of 20 in the back of an exposition hall where he takes three hours to make sure he talks to everybody, or he talks to you from a stage, or he talks to you on the air, you're going to hear the same person, the same ideals, consistently over and over and over again. And that's because when I do something like I did yesterday, I research the crap out of the book. I spend hours reading the book. I do hours of follow-up research. I get the facts, and then I present the facts to you along with my view of them. And I'm very clear about, I think this, this is what's happening, or I think this, and this is what happened in the past. I think this would have worked, this is what they actually did, and these were the results. That, to me, is what makes this show different than anything else that you'll get anywhere else in mainstream media anyway. I do not sit here when I'm about to come in and do a show about contour-based gardening, how to put garden beds on contour and integrate that with hua culture and think, how can I present this in a way that will make them excited and, you know, and energetic? I don't do that. I just come in and I do it the same way that if you came to my house right now and you were just a random person walking up the road, you were a new neighbor, and you said, God, that's an amazing garden. How did you do that? I explain it the exact same way. 
If I talk to you about something the president's done or the Congress has done or our economy and I'm mad and I'm pissed off and I'm flipping out about it, it's no different than if you and I were sitting in a bar, we met each other five minutes ago, but I knew I could trust you and I knew you were open-minded and you asked me my opinion, you'll get it the same way. That's why. I will never apologize for what I say unless I get it wrong. I will never apologize for how I say it unless, because I'm a human being, I let emotion get the better of me and I'm mean to somebody when I don't need to be. In those two instances, I'll apologize and I'll correct it. I always have. Otherwise, it is what it is. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Maybe you prefer NPR and fresh air. I, I mean, seriously, right? I, I mean, I am what I am. And if you don't like it, I don't mean to be an ass about it, but then why are you listening? And that doesn't mean it. And I've got a lot of people say, well, I can't believe you're that hard on somebody for disagreeing. I, I don't care if you disagree. Disagree all you want. I'll respect your disagreements. I won't respect your disagreements coupled with falsehoods and infactual things or inferring that I said something that I did not. Those, those are bullshit. And I don't tolerate bullshit. If you know why you believe what you believe, I respect you even when it's 180 degrees out from what I believe. So while I won't apologize for how, what, and why is on this show, I will explain it from time to time. That's what I hope I've just done. Um, and I, I want to do a little bit more about why occasionally I do snap a gasket. And you'll just like, not this week, last week, Monday's show, I was just on the top rope for about 40, 50% of the show, and I kind of settled down toward the end. Um, I don't think, you, and I'm not complaining, I'm explaining. Please understand that. I don't think you guys understand how many times a day I hear from somebody that thinks that the aliens are going to get us. I, I, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. And they'll, they'll write an email that's compelling enough to get me to read up to the alien part. Uh, I don't think you realize how many times a day, and this probably is 15 to 20 a day on average, that I hear from people that have just discovered Alex Jones and are absolutely terrified that tomorrow morning some jack-booted thug Gestapo guy is going to throw them in a FEMA camp. I don't know how many emails I get a week from people that aren't just convinced that there's something to chemtrails, but that now every jet that they see everywhere is spraying a chemtrail, including United Flight you know, 1763 on its way to Boston out of New Jersey. Right? I mean, I'm, this, is, this is typical. Uh, I don't think you guys realize how many times I get an email from people a day that says I need to get all of my money into something safe because my cash is going to be worthless by the end of the week because I just listened to some video by some ass clown on YouTube. Right? Or how many times I get the email about the dinar that started the whole thing last week. I, I'm going to invest in the dinar because when it's revalued, that's been 12 years and it's not been revalued. It's not going to be revalued. I get this hype, this crap, this bullshit. I get pitches from overpriced prepper items. I get people wanting me to recommend their piece of crap bullshit product to you online every day. I get people that have been suckered in by them that still think they're great because they haven't figured it out yet. I get people sending me emails going, God, this thing sucked. I wish I would have listened. I get it over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm not complaining. It's my job and part of me loves it. But as a human being, every once in a while, one or two of them will build up and I'll tweak. And back to what I said earlier. I'm the same guy on the air, you would meet in a bar or have a steak with on my deck or meet at an expo. And if I would tweak there, I'm going to tweak here. I don't hide who I am. No one will ever shock you with anything about me. No one's going to come to you one day and go, Jack Spirico doesn't believe in global warming. And you're going to go, oh, I didn't know that. You're going to be like, duh, you said it like a billion times. I, 
don't know what you're probably... Even, you know, a lot, a lot of people would say, I don't even agree with him on that, but it's not like it's in his closet. Or, Jack Spierko doesn't like big government. Or, Jack Spierko curses. Or, Jack Spierko does not belong to any organized faith or church. He's not a he's not a devout Christian. I don't think anybody out there would go, Oh my God, no way! I think people would go, Duh. I do not have two personalities. Uh... Uh, contrary to what our friend says about my belief that you want a society where people will settle down for life but yet still have the choice to leave. I don't have an on and an off personality. I don't have an on-air way that I behave and an off-air way that I behave. I am who I am every single day. And I want you to take this away with that. That's my commitment to you. You will always be able to trust me because I won't tell you anything different because the record button has been pressed than I would if we were talking privately offline. I'm not that person. I never will be. If you want a person like that, I promise you, there's literally millions of them. Turn the TV on, turn the radio on. They're everywhere. People like me, and this is not, again, any kind of arrogance, it's just factual, are the exception, not the rule. There's plenty of us out there, but in comparison to the whole of people that are in media in any way, we're a much smaller number. Very few people are willing to be the same person in the public eye as they are in the private eye. That's why you hear it sometimes. And when it upsets you, I'm sorry you're upset. And when I get it wrong, I'm sorry I did it. And I usually come back and say, I'm sorry I did it. All right, let's move on. Um, let's talk about something that's all over the news right now, especially right-wing media. The protesters overseas that want us all dead. They're chanting death to America. They're burning the American flag. I saw one. Now, somebody can either confirm or deny this for me because I haven't researched it because it's not that important to me. But if it is, there is some humor. And apparently somebody somewhere set the American flag on fire and inhaled the fumes and killed themselves, like was overwhelmed with smoke or maybe it was a, uh, the material the flag was made out or something. But somebody killed themselves by burning the American flag. And that's just Darwinism at its finest, if it's true. Um, burning anything and killing yourself, and it, I just really... you didn't know to step back, whatever. But that might not even be true. That might be an urban legend that's now been turned into a true internet urban legend, right? Who knows? Um, but I'm getting a lot of emails from people very, very scared that this is the beginning of World War III and the Islamists are going to get us and all. And I'll tell you what, you better be damn well more concerned about the local economy and the long-term implications of something we're going to get to in a bit called QE Unlimited or QE3 for those that think it's really QE3 when it's 4.5 or something like that, and unlimited is a more accurate thing, then you better be about some people in Libya that hate you because some guy made a movie. Um, when we were in North Carolina, William Fortune Spank, Spank he spoke, uh, the author of One Second After, and he opened up his whole speech about Islamism and how they're pissed about this movie And he went on and on about how we had to sit when they put a crucifix into a jar full of urine and smeared uh, elephant feces on a picture of the Virgin Mary. And how we didn't snap out, and now look at what these people are doing. I mean, if you want a distraction, there it is. Listen, um, no matter what faith I am or profess, if you take an implement of that faith that's not mine, I don't own it, and you do something to it, I don't really care. I find it offensive, But I don't, in the grand scheme of things, it's a thing. If you're a Christian, and I don't mean to preach somebody else's faith to them, but if you're a Christian, then you know that there's a commandment against idolatry. 
right? We don't worship statues and things and stuff. They're just symbols, right? When I was in, when I was a Catholic in Catholic school as a little boy, one day we were talking about something. I don't remember what in the religious portion of class. I think it was comparative religion. We were talking about uh, people starving to death but not eating a cow when a cow was right there. And in and, and typical, you know, fifth grader fashion, I said, well, that's stupid. And I remember the teacher being very upset with me and saying, if you were freezing to death, would you go into a church, take the wooden statues, bust them up and burn them to keep warm versus freezing to death? And my response was, I absolutely would. They're just statues. They're just symbols. So that whole thing is a distraction as to the whole. Now, the fact that people would riot, burn, tear down buildings, and kill because they're offended that somebody doesn't like their religion or presented their religion poorly is an issue. But it's not that big an issue for you and me here in America. It really isn't. Those people are using this occurrence as an excuse to do what they want to do anyway. It's not about this video. Which, by the way, I watched the, like, I don't know, five minute trailer for it or something, and it was just, it was like really poorly done Monty Python. And I don't really care. I, I, I don't know why somebody feels the need to insult another person's faith or religion. Right? I really don't. And are there Islamists that want to bring Islam to America and force us to live under their will? Yes. Do I care? No. Because I'll tell you what, if you try to force me to live under your will with religion, I don't care what your religion is. I will use the Second Amendment in a militia and I will shoot your ass dead. I mean, that's, that's flat out. No, Sharia law ain't coming here because there's millions of other men like me that would say, you can want whatever you want, right? You know, I want, I want to be able to fart unicorns and have an angel grant me riches off its back. We've talked about that before. I want, I really do want that. I mean, when it comes down to it, that sounds like a great idea. I want a million dollars. I want a cherry on top of every Sunday that I'm ever given for free, and I want lots of free Sundays. You know, I want ice cream to be better than it is already, and I want to be able to eat a gallon a day and not get fat. I want a lot of stuff, but I ain't getting it. So they can want whatever they want. This nation need not cower in front of anybody, even if our elected officials do. Bring it, baby. That's my response to that one. And if they don't like it, you know... I've heard statements from some of these radicals that say things like, we have millions of young men ready to go meet Allah. We can help you with that if you bring it here. And this is the other side, for those of you who think I'm being too hawkish and militant, if you do it over there, it's your own business, and I think we should leave you the hell alone until you let your system fall on its own face. So here's my problem with all of this. we got Egyptians run by the Muslim Brotherhood storming the gates of our embassy, hoisting a jihad flag over top of it, and we're going to give them a billion dollars in aid? How about this? How about all these nations that hate us, Islamic or not, we stop giving them money. And we say, see ya. And we let them run their government, and we run our government, and we prove that our way works better than their way by demonstration. But, again, this is all a distraction. Right? Mitt Romney said that 47, let's, let's go to the other big distraction that's going on right now. Mitt Romney said that 47% of Americans feel entitled and won't vote for him anyway. And it's not up to him to go after those people. That he needs to convince the 47% that don't need, and a bigger part of the six is the, the part that wasn't said. That's what the guy was saying. 47 might be a higher number, right? But here's the reality. 
This is, this is the core of what the man was saying. And I don't like him before anybody thinks I do. 40% of people that vote would vote for a Democrat if my dog Max was the candidate. They're that blind. <laughs> don't think the Republicans get off. 40% of people will vote for the Republican candidate if my cat Ralph was the Republican candidate. And if Ralph was running against Max for the presidency, there are people who would still try to convince me that voting for a third candidate, third party candidate, would be wasting my vote. Right? And that 80% that shows up at the elections and votes that way, very few people ever leave that voter block. And those that say, well, yeah, that's not me, tell me one Democrat, or if you're on the other side, tell me one Republican you ever voted for. And if you can tell me, then that's true. But if you can't give me one then that's where you are. Inside that group, there's an, or outside of that group is about 20%. Now, certain times, that 20% will overwhelmingly become one of the other two groups. 15% will become diehard Democrats for a term or two or three or swing the, the right, right? But though that group, that 20%, historically, the mushy middle moves back and forth. There's nothing... Mitt Romney can say to the 40, not 47%, on that other side, that will change their mind. Nothing. Nothing at all. There is nothing Barack Obama could say to the 40% that are on the other side that would change their mind. The entire election is around this 20%. And about half of them have opted out this year and don't give a shit. So the entire election is around 10%. So if you go 47 and 47 split, you end up with six, he's only off by four points. Now, let's talk about where the number came from. The number came from the fact that 47% of Americans don't pay taxes. That's the number that he was pulling out of the... Out of the and and he, the, the, of course, the media says this is unfair because many of these people do pay payroll taxes, Social Security taxes. Well, let me explain something to you. Medicare taxes and Social Security taxes are being used by the government to support other programs, but they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be for you. So the payer is paying in to their own account. So they're not taxes in the traditional sense, except for the government lying about their intended purpose originally and now pilfering them, stealing them, and leaving an IOU that ain't worth shit behind. So that doesn't qualify as paying income tax the way that income tax does, first of all. Second of all, the other one there would be Medicaid. That does get redistributed, but it's a very small part of the whole. So what happens to these Americans that aren't paying income tax that are paying these other taxes is you're being robbed just like your fellow Americans, just not robbed as much. All right? So here's the bigger problem. While your two ass-clown candidates, Obama and Romney, Robomini, right, stand up there and get you guys to fight with each other about who's not paying their fair share, no one says to them, hold on a second, wait a minute. You guys took in about $2 trillion last year in income tax. Let's, let's forget about who paid. Between corporations, the small guy, the little guy, the big guy, the middle guy, the old lady, the young lady, between everybody, you guys took in about $2 trillion in taxes at the federal level last year. Just straight taxes. On top of that, you guys borrowed $1.5 trillion you didn't have and spent $3.5 trillion of our money, including a, a trillion and a half we don't have. That my kid's gonna have to pay for. How come everything's so screwed up when you guys have three and a half trillion dollars? What are you doing with our money? 
How are you wasting our money? Why do you want more of anybody's money when you can't get this right in the first place? Isn't this what we should actually be worried about instead of the fact that somebody killed our ambassador in Libya? Am I upset about that? Yes. But if you're an ambassador in Libya at this time, it's a legitimate risk. I'm as upset about it as any random soldier killed in Afghanistan tomorrow. I'm upset about it, but I'm not ready to go to war over it because we're already at war there. We're already in a combat zone. And that's the soldier's job. And you guys know I support the soldier, even if I don't want him there. I support the man, the individual, the man or the woman doing the job. But that inherently every soldier knows when they put that hand up and swear to defend the Constitution of the United States, it can be sent anywhere in the world. And an ambassador to a place like Libya knows you're taking the same risk. So am I saying we should just ignore it? Not up front, but down the road, yeah. I think we should just back off and say, you know what, you guys want our help? When you're willing to have decent relationships with us, we're have decent relationships with you. Otherwise, go screw, starve. You know why are we giving Egypt a billion dollars? Why, why are the American people not connecting those dots? Okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that this rich guy didn't pay enough in taxes, even though he paid 18 million dollars in taxes. But see, he makes a billion dollars. Wait a minute. He paid 18 million dollars in taxes. Okay. Hmm. I paid 50 thousand dollars in taxes. This guy down the street paid ten. The other guy down the road that makes less money, he paid five. This really rich guy paid a hundred million dollars out of all his companies combined in taxation. Warren Buffett, who says he pays less than his secretary, is full of shit. He's one of the most heavily taxed people in the world because his money is taxed at the corporate level. All of this money goes into a place. We get a billion dollars of his tax money. You want me to be upset about what's going on in Egypt, but you're giving him a billion dollars? Why should any of us give you one penny more when you're giving a billion dollars to Libya, who hates us? What? Or I mean, uh, Egypt, who apparently hates us. But no, the American people would rather divide over that issue than follow the money to the source. And that's what I'm asking you guys to do in this political climate. And I'll tell you the biggest problem with Mitt Romney saying that 47% feel entitled, the one that nobody will say. If I thought he believed it, I would vote for him. Let me say that again because I know it just went right past people because it's way out of left field. If I thought he believed it, I would give him my vote. I won't vote for either of these men. I find them both traitors to the nation, big government assholes that will increase our debt and our spending. Okay, that's how I view them. If Mitt Romney's actions were consistent with his statement, if he wasn't a big government liberal as governor of Massachusetts, if he really stated, you know, what he said they feel entitled to health care. Yet he did that in Massachusetts, didn't you there, Mitt? Right. If he actually meant, and I don't care if it's forty-seven, forty-five, forty-eight point five, thirty-six point two, but a large percentage of Americans feel entitled. And it's time for them to wake up to the reality that you don't get whatever you want. You're not entitled. That it's up to you to stand up and do for yourself. And we were going to build a country that ran that way. If his actions matched his marketing, if Mitt Romney was the same person on and off the air, if Mitt Romney was the same person behind the microphone as is behind an executive desk, I'd vote for him all day. Problem is, he's not. That's what the media won't tell you. That's what you won't hear a single person on TV say. 
you'll hear people take both sides of the issue, but you won't hear people say, he said it, but is it what he's done? All right. Um, I want to go into something totally different now. So we did a little bit of what would, you know, got lost on a Monday uh, with some current events and some politics. Let's talk a little bit about another question I'm getting a lot of from people, especially when I did the fall gardening episode. People are asking me, what are you guys doing differently on your property now than if you were going to stay? For those that don't know, we've decided we're moving uh, our homestead anyway thing back to Texas. We've always kept a place in Texas. We've kept an apartment there uh, even since we left. And uh, that way we have a place to stay when we go there. Um, but we've decided that we want to spend the majority of our time Uh, near family back in Texas, and we're looking for, you know, five, ten-acre piece of land somewhere within an hour or less of my wife's family so that she can see them whenever she wants to, and uh, a little bit more conducive to permaculture ideals than the piece of land that I have today because I know so much more about permaculture than I did almost ten years ago when I bought this property up here as our vacation home. And uh, I've had people say, well, you know, what are you doing differently? And the answer is not really very much. Um... I am going to be going home today and planting broccoli and cabbage and lettuce and spinach and things like that into both starter pots and into garden beds. Uh, I still have about half of one of my raised beds, my big long raised beds that was polycultured with all kinds of stuff. It's pretty much now nothing but uh, sweet potatoes. I've cut everything else out, turned it into mulch, left a few pepper plants here and there, but it was like crazy with squash and pumpkins and uh, you know, different herbs and everything. And I've kind of cleared it out and I've mulched it back and I've got about half of one side of one of the two beds that still I, what I need to do is the sweet potatoes have crawled you know, 20 feet away from the bed, and I'm just basically untangling them and bringing the vines back, placing them on the bed and burying the vines to get some more tuber set, and I'm doing that. Um, I've got some sorghum that's going and putting out second grain heads because I lost the main grain heads while I was away and when I left last time for an expo. Uh, they dried right then. The birds came in and ate it in the two days I was gone. I wanted to see if they put secondary heads on the arse, so maybe I'll get some grain out of the Mennonite sorghum. Uh, but as soon as I'm done getting that done, they're coming out. That bed's getting redone. I'm putting down cover crops. I just planted a whole bunch of clover. I'm probably going to build some more beds. And we're hoping to be, you know, there's actually a house that we're going to be looking at this month, and if it works out, we might be moving in October. Uh, absolutely drop dead is kind of January, February to get stuff started because I don't want to start in August or June again like I did when I came here. Uh, for you know, had the time to really work it. So even with that, I'm still doing all these things. Well, why? Well, number one, I'm learning as I do it, so it's part of my education. I wouldn't stop my educational process because I was going to transfer schools. Uh, number two, it continues to improve the value of the land, and I know that whoever buys this land is going to value the things that are done there because that's why they're going to choose to buy the property in the first place. Uh, number three, It's me. It's who I am. I, I won't stop being who and what I am just because I'm moving. What I won't do is any other really big projects. Like if we, when we were still like debating, well, are we going to keep this or not? I was about to bring an excavator in again and take and put in a couple big terraces up on the north, uh, north slope, uh, that's facing south basically. Uh, on the northwestern slope of my land, I was going to push out maybe another quarter to a half of an acre of terrace and take out most of the trees and stuff like that. That was going to be a big job and require a lot of uh, repair of the land after it was done. 
And uh, I'm not going to do that, obviously, at this point. But that's about the only big change I'm making. And we're not adding any livestock or anything like that because it would just be another uh, headache to, to move them. And part of why I was going to do that was to create some pasture where I could maybe bring a few goats or something in. Uh, but given that we're going to move, it's, it's not worth doing. So uh, I'm not doing a whole lot different. I have heard from people that are like kind of bummed out that you gave up on the land that you have. That like you're, you want bigger and better things now. And it's not that. And if that's what you're thinking, it's not that. If my wife was not struggling so much with being so far away, I wouldn't move back. And I would continue to terraform this entire five acres of, of mountain land. I would have to be careful with it. There's certain things I wouldn't want to do because it is 25-year-old regrowth hickory and oak. So there's only certain spots I'd be willing to clear out. But I could take this further, and I'd be happy to do it. And I could figure out how to put some ponds and things like that in. I, especially now, I'm getting more of an idea of the terrain and how I can make this difficult environment workable. And I would really embrace the challenge. But since that's not the case, since my wife is having trouble with this, and I do want to take us back, then the trade-off for me to her is, great, we're going to go and get closer, but I'm going to have certain requirements that the land be an upgrade for me. So this is a compromise in a marriage, not me giving up on a piece of property. So I, And I heard that from like two different people at the expo. And I'm like, he, he didn't get it. So, again, today this is about some things about clearing the air and making sure I'm understood. So that's the case. We're going back due to geographic undesirability as far as proximity to family. Uh, I also have told you that living here on and off has really taught me that my heart is in Texas. And I can't explain it because I was born in Jersey and grew up in Florida and Pennsylvania And Pennsylvania and Florida have very special parts of themselves to me. And when I was in North Carolina this last week, just the eastern United States with the rainfall and the soil and just the, the seasonality and everything of it, it really is something that is, as, a, as somebody that wants to, to be basically a micro farmer, God, it's so attractive to me. But the roots are where the roots are. Uh, regardless of where the acorn fell, when it finally put down roots... It's Texas. That's that's where uh, I want to be. But I, I could make it work anywhere. But I love my wife. And I will do whatever it takes within reason to make sure that I care for my wife properly and that my wife's happy. And if that means that we uh, are going to build our long-term homestead in Texas, so be it. But it's not about being afraid of the challenge of the landscape, so to speak. I'm I'm actually intrigued by the landscape. And I every day I look at it, I think, well, I could do this, I could do that. Even now that I'm not going to do it, I still think, what else could I do? How else could I do it? Because it's sharpening my mind. So that when I have this problem and I'm looking at it for somebody else, I'll be able to figure out what they can do. And that's that's why. So there we go on that one. Um Let's go back into topical things with QE forever, quantitative easing. They call it QE3. It should be at minimum QE4 because of Operation Twist, uh, but they should call it QEF, QE forever. Because this is, for those that don't know the whole story behind this yet, Ben Bernanke came out with another round of quantitative easing. Uh, and the Fed chairman has announced, you know that bullshit that you hear, like, like they even know what they're talking about when they say it. Uh, but here's what he said. They will... Buy up $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities every month 
until it works. Until unemployment goes down, uh, they'll, they'll just keep doing it. They'll keep, they, they pretty much said we'll keep interest rates at zero, um, all the way up until 2015. They've committed to that. Let me tell you there's two things at play there that people don't really get. You hear interest rates at zero. And if you've gone to get a mortgage recently, you might have noticed really good rates like three and a half percent, but they're not, they're not zero. What, what the hell is a zero thing? Or if you've, um, tried to use money on your credit card or get your hands on money anywhere, any place, any time, there's always been a cost associated with it. About the only place you see zero is in front of the very small percentage, uh, that you find on your, your savings account. So zero point, you know, one, five percent or whatever stupid thing. But there's a, there's an interest rate everywhere you look. So who gets zero? Well, the institutions do. The banks get pretty much a zero interest rate. The speculators get a zero interest rate. So one of the big things that's not being talked about here is all, you know, speculators. Speculators are making the gas price go up. Speculators are making the corn go up and what have you. Well, if their cost of borrowing to do their speculating with is zero, What check is there on their speculation, regardless of which politician banks, which garbage can the loudest with which wooden spoon? Well, so there's one of your problems that no one's going to explain to you, and I just did. The cost of institutional investment leverage is now zero, has been zero, and will continue to be zero till 2015. So the big boys making the big trades, doing these you know microsecond trades, they're supposed to force liquidity into the market and whatever, uh, this high-speed trading, all of this stuff, long-term speculation, short-term speculation, all of it, their cost to do it is zero. Which means the value of your money to other nations is zero. There's no cost to the dollar. Here's the bigger issue with QE forever. And I don't think people can understand numbers like a billion dollars and $40 billion dollars anymore. So we live in this world where we've heard like stimulus programs with $800 billion. dollars. So $40 billion doesn't sound like that much. Unlike the stimulus, which was spending solely, this is new money. This is being created. And a billion is something that people don't understand. They don't get their head around a billion dollars. It's like a million, then a billion. No, there's a million. Then there's tens of millions. Right? Then there's hundreds of millions. And when you get to a thousand million, then you get to a billion. A billion is a thousand million dollars. Why is that so important? Because to put this in perspective for you, 40 billion a month is more than a thousand billion dollars a day of new money being created in the economy. That's the first problem. Okay? So, but then the second problem is what's being bought and why and what will be done with what's being bought. So the Fed chairman says the Fed will buy mortgage-backed securities. So they'll go to Freddie Mac and say, give us $40 billion this month, please, of mortgages. So they're buying your mortgage. I, I don't think that's another thing. It's not just toxic assets. When you move at this stage in the game, where most of the people that are going to be re repossessed have been repossessed and kicked out of their house, The mortgages that are on the books are not toxic in the traditional sense anymore. Maybe they're upside down, but the, the, the homeowner's paying the, the bill. So the Fed's buying your mortgage, your neighbor's mortgage, your uncle's mortgage, your son's mortgage, your daughter's mortgage. The Fed is buying mortgages at a thousand million dollars in value a day. Now what are they buying them with? Journal entries. It doesn't actually cost them any money because they're creating the money when they make the buy. The Fed, being a group of private banks, 
And anybody out there that tells you they're not a private organization is full of shit and doesn't know what they're talking about. Look them up in the, in the you know, try to find them in the government pages in your, your phone book if you still have one. They're not there. They're a private bank. They're a private cartel of banks. So this private cartel of banks says deposit to Freddie Mac. Maybe we're not buying them all from Freddie Mac this week, this month. So deposit to Freddie Mac $5 billion. And the mortgages go from Freddie Mac to the Fed. Freddie Mac gets $5 billion. And more likely, it's not Freddie Mac. It's Wells Fargo. It's Bank of America, what have you. Because Freddie Mac is just the backer that, that, that basically backs the mortgage. And that relieves them of certain obligations to a degree, except now they're obligated to the Fed. It's the banks that actually make and broker the loans out. So that's who they're really buying this from. So if Bank of America gets $15 billion and divests itself of $15 billion worth of mortgages, what does it do with that $15 billion? I mean, they can only pay their, their CEO so many bonuses. He doesn't get a $15 billion bonus. What does a bank do when you give them $15 billion? There's only two things they can do with it. Hold it or loan it. That's it. They can hold it or they can loan it. Now, they're not loaning anywhere near at the rate that these buys are being made, which tells us the majority of the money is being held by the banks because they're scared shitless. We've been talking about them being afraid of a day of reckoning for years. They're trying to build up a big financial war chest so that they don't go insolvent when the plug pulls out of this thing. They're trying to stuff themselves with money. They'll loan here and there to create more money, but in reality, most of the money will be held. Before we talk about being held, let's talk about the money that does get loaned. When they write a mortgage, they do the same thing the Fed does. When you go to Bank of America and say, I'd like $200,000 to buy this house, please, they don't give you $200,000. They make a journal entry and create $200,000, and hold a 10% reserve, $20,000. So the way people think of it is, for a bank to loan $200,000, they have to have more than $200,000 to be left with a 10% reserve. It's, it's, it's backwards. It's backwards. If you give a bank $20,000, they can just hold it and create two hundred, Because they're not taking the money out of their own account. They're creating it. So even the money that doesn't get held is going to create more money than it already has been created. So it magnifies inflation. So as lending opens up, as housing markets fall, values fall, as some level of recovery comes, and it will. I'm going to get to this, but the whole prediction I had of falling off the end of the cliff at the end of the year is gone now. This is going to work, and I'm going to tell you why it's bad that it's going to work in just a minute. As that happens and the lending starts to open up, inflation comes through. Here's the other side of it. What's really going on here? What is nobody telling you? What will the media not tell you? Not even the alternative media tell you about what's really going on. Since the majority of the thousand million dollars a day, thousand million dollars a day will be held for now by the banks, how are they going to hold it? Nickels, dimes, and quarters, twenties, fifties, tens, and, and, and Ben Franklin's? No. How do banks hold the majority of their stable assets? Two places. Gold. Gold is number one. They'll only hold so much. But the banks will use this to convert your mortgage into their gold holdings so when your property value goes to shit, they're protected. Number two, and where the majority of it will go so that it stays liquid and easily transferable for interbank lending and things like that, 
U.S. Treasury bonds. This action is not just inflating the, the supply of money, but ensuring that the inflation runs to the government in the form of new debt and new lending to help keep the debt turning over for another two or three years. So that the Fed doesn't have to directly go in and buy the debt. The Fed is using something to buy, nothing to buy something so that somebody else will use nothing to buy something. This is like a bad case of Wheel of Fortune uh, uh, buying vowels here. So let's follow the money. I'm Bank of America. The Fed comes to me this month. From me, they buy $5 billion worth of mortgages that I don't really want anymore. I get my $5 billion. I'm already profitable. I take about a half a billion and I put it into my lending jar. And I say, this is so we can make more mortgage loans. This is safe to make loans with because we already got rid of loans. So go out and get origination fees and front load this and that and, and make these loans. And let's sell those next month because they're going to come back and buy another $5 billion. So now we're going to ramp up the housing market because I know as soon as I create the loan, I can turn around, package it up, and dump it to Uncle Ben next month to get more money. Well, let's take the rest of this money and let's hold it. Let's go out and put a billion dollars worth of gold on our balance sheet. And let's take the other $3 billion and we'll take that $3 billion and we'll go buy U.S. Treasuries. And that will create lending back to the government to put the people greater in debt so that we guarantee the collapse. So that when the collapse comes, we're sitting on the gold. We got Uncle Ben with our back over here continuously buying the crap that we'll create in the next boom cycle off of us with an excuse that he's making the economy better. And the better the economy gets, the better it's justified. And the more of the people will beg them not to stop doing it. Eventually, when they do have to stop doing it because the whole Ponzi scheme starts to fall apart, we'll blame the other side who said to stop doing it all along for the collapse that it creates. Then we'll be sitting on all this gold. We'll be sitting on almost no mortgages. They'll all be held by the Fed. The Fed will take a loss in paper, but all of it will be profitable under the table because here's the final piece of the puzzle for those that haven't heard this before. This is important. The big objection you'll hear when somebody like me, and they'll label me a tinner, a tin hatter, they'll label me a conspiracy theorist, and I say the Fed is private, is they'll say all the profit that the Federal Reserve makes goes to the United States Treasury. This is true, but how do you define profit? It's like, what's the definition of is? What's the definition of profit? Profit is a gain. Now, if the Federal Reserve buys $40 billion worth of mortgages, And in either selling them later or collecting the payments in on them, because there's somebody on the other end of that debt. There's a homeowner making his payment every month, right? $990 to bank of bullshit because it's really going to the Fed now because the Fed's really the holder. They're making that cash flow. That's coming in. If they collect $39 billion, technically they lose a billion dollars. What did it cost them? What did it cost them? Did it cost them a billion dollars? No, because they made a journal entry to get the money in the first place. If they get 41 billion for the 40 billion, they give a billion, get this, they give a billion to the treasury and they keep the 40 billion they didn't do anything for. They've printed the money today and they get to keep it tomorrow when it comes back. It's a shell game. It's a shell game. So even when the housing market, the economy collapses in the double dip on the other side of this thing, 
Whatever's left, the Fed gets as scraps, and they tendered no consideration for it in the first place. Additionally, it's made up of banks, the same banks that they're buying the mortgages from. Bank of America's part of the Fed. So when Bank of America is stuffing its war chest with gold, so's the Fed. People are saying, well, the Fed can go bankrupt from all this. No. The Fed will make literally a new mint out of this. One backed with gold, silver, and possibly other commodities. And in the whole thing, the American people get screwed. Now, here's the thing. I said this will work. People think I'm crazy when I say this will work. It never works. It always works. It just doesn't work forever. In fact, the problem with this Keynesian e economic concept, this, this, this fiat concept, isn't that it fails. It's that it takes so long to fail. Right? This is like, this is like a version of Ebola that kills you in a, two weeks instead of one day. Right? There's actually a strain of Ebola that seems to be mutating to do that now. Right? But the thing that's kept Ebola in check is a village gets Ebola. It affects the village. Two days later, everybody in the village falls over and dies. They're dead. They don't go anywhere. It kills you so fast that it can't spread. Dangerous pandemic illnesses take a week or two to kill you. And they take two or three days of incubation to incapacitate you. That way you travel around and spread them. But if it kills you in a day, it ain't going nowhere. Right? That was part, SARS was so virulent, that was part of what helped them contain it in China and, and overseas and in Canada. That people came down with it so quick they were using the spot. Imagine if people walked around with SARS for... I don't know, 15, 20 days before they got a sniffle and another 10 days before they got really sick and another 5 days before they needed a hospital. Right? This is modern Keynesian economics. These clowns have been running the current paradigm since 1971. It's infected everybody. And it ain't done yet. When they do this open-ended QE, everything I just told you will happen and it will quote-unquote work. We have to ask what work means. Work means the following. Eventually, the banks will have to open up lending. This will force banks to open up lending. It will drive mortgage prices lower. The big inflation that it causes will not be seen in the first six months to maybe even 12 months. Very little of it will be seen because the money won't move at first. It will go into the banks. It will go into gold. You will see metals go up here. This could be a huge bull. And I'm not saying go put everything in, but I'm telling you, this is one place to look. Gold and silver are going to make a bull run out of this. Maybe not tomorrow morning, but over this two, three-year period, they are going to go. Other commodities will lag behind because they will be, instead of, uh, instead of inflation insurance, they will be inflation adjusted. They will adjust what the inflation is, the inflation exposes. Some long-term, storable, predictable commodities will get a short-term boost, You know, things like corn futures and things like that. But the real consumer end side of the inflation will lag behind the short-term spike in things that people know they can count on. As that begins to move forward and the banks get to a point where they've stuffed themselves with gold, they've stuffed the money back into the government debt, one of the two ass clowns is in charge claiming everything's getting better, Employment, unemployment numbers will begin to drop more than they already have, Part of it will be real, part of it will be fake. The economy will begin to heat up. 
I know I'm changing this, but this changes things, right? When it changes, I tell you. When the economy begins to heat up, more and more people will become confident. They'll open up the wallets again. They'll start spending again. The companies will begin to make profits that will look unbelievable. Because this is what I've been saying. I've said this one all along. The company that makes the magic marker will spend 90 days before the marker gets onto the store shelf. And the cost of the, the components that made the marker will go up in that 90-day period and justify the higher point of sale price. That's when the inflation will begin to unravel. When that happens, we're a year or two at most at that point away from really going off the precipice of the other side. This is a debt bubble. And it's being done in a way that I never thought it would be done. This is a gambit by the Fed chairman. That I did not expect. And that's what a gambit, everybody's ever wondered what a gambit is. A gambit is in chess is an opening or a move that is completely counter to what your opponent would expect. A guy that studied chess his whole life would go, there's like one of four moves this guy could make. And you come out of left field with something that could be really weak or really strong. It just isn't expected. And that's what this is. This is a gambit. This is, I'll tell you what, you spoil brat of a stock market, you spoil brat of a free, free, free market economy, you spoil brat that runs to me every single time and says, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben, cut interest rate, Uncle Ben, do some easing, Uncle Ben, Uncle screw it, here's a blank check, boys, Uncle Ben's got your back, go out there and make it happen now, stop worrying. I'll, I'll hold the interest till 2015 and I'll give you freaking $40 billion a month to play in your casino with. At no cost. I'll buy the shit you have that's worthless and give you other paper that you can go make worthless stuff with and I'll let you go play the commodity game all you want with it and I'll charge you zero interest beyond the $40 billion I'm giving you for free. I'll take your unmarketable security and I'll make it marketable tomorrow morning and I'll do it next month and next month and next month and next month. And if you don't think the casino clowns are going to run with that, You haven't been paying attention. They will run with it. This changes it. This makes my original prediction all the way back in 2008 before the first crash. This brings it to fruition. The only thing that can unplug this before it unplugs itself is municipal bond defaults. But with this much money coming in there, don't think they won't figure out how to funnel some of it into these municipalities. They'll prop that up with it, too. That's what they're going to do. Uncle Ben's going to say, you know what? I know we gave you this money, but San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, these guys need some money. Come on, we just gave it to you. Give them a little bit, toot the rest, and do your other thing with it. They'll hold government bonds. They'll hold municipal bonds. They're going to put new requirements in to force the banks to hold more of these. They're going to say, here's money, but here's what thou shalt do with some portion of thy money. There you go, guys. There's the game. And there's how it ends. And don't ask me to tell you how long we have. But I'm a little bit more optimistic on the timeline than I've been for a long time. I think we have two years. I think we're in the beginning of a two-year bull run. I really do. And there's some other analysts out there on the contrarian side of things that would tend to agree with me. Specifically people like the people that are behind like the Daily Reckoning and the Daily Wealth newsletters. They, they have that same feeling, that same timeline, inkling. That gives me confidence when I see an independent source that's been historically fairly accurate come out with that number. So I want to stop here for a second at the end and kind of give you my thoughts at the end of today's show. What do you do with those two grace years if we get those two years? Number one, 
I think as long as you do it smartly and you can afford it and you have good reserves, if you've been considering buying a house, buy a house. I've been saying that for a long time, but I'm still sticking with it. Buy a house now. Don't buy something you can't afford. Don't buy overpriced. Find what you want and buy it. Because I think when this pimple pops, buying a house is going to be all but impossible unless you have lots of cash or lots of gold or lots of silver. It's going to be the only way because lending will be virtually non-existent for four or five years. I mean, people are just going to be stuck and stymied. So that's number one. If you have a property dream ownership, I think you got about one to two years to get it done. I was worried it was going to be a shorter timeline, and don't slow down because I said it will be longer. I'm guessing here. I'm honest about that. I always am. This is my gut. Uh, number two, please protect yourself in this period of time and save money outside of government Uh, controlled institutions like uh, I'm not saying not out not in banks right now you can still keep your money in a bank be prepared to liquidate it but that's not what I'm saying I'm saying no 401ks IRAs right now they're going to nationalize those eventually I really think they are and I, I'm not saying liquidate because I could be wrong right but pay attention and if you're doing 10% into a 401k and you're not comfortable stopping your contributions I got a solution for you open up a plain old AIG bank account or something like that or ING bank account, orange, a uh, little bit better interest rate than you'll get anywhere else, uh, or just start putting it in freaking a strong box and start putting five, go from 10% to your IRA to five and five on the outside. Please build up some cash reserve because even when the, the, the economic system implodes, we don't know exactly how long it's going to take, what it's going to look like, what the exchange rate to the new currency is going to be. You're going to need money. And the more they devalue the money, the more money you will need. Not less. So please save some money and be prepared to put it into hard assets quickly if you feel the need to. But but just build some cash reserves. Next, I've said it before so many times, but get out of debt. If you think the debt's going to go away when this thing happens, you're crazy. There'll be programs. There'll be there'll be bailouts like you ain't never seen before. But all they'll do is put you in, in into that debt for the rest of your life. This is going to create more serfs than the Middle Ages did. In a totally different way. This is going to create financial serfdom on a level we've never seen before. That's what they'll do. They'll literally make you a slave to the financial institutions with the existing debt. They won't put you in jail. They won't forgive your debt. They'll extend it. They'll forgive parts of it. They'll create terms. But in the new world, the new economy... If you're starting out with that anchor on you, it's going to be very hard for you to get up to, to running speed in this new after the shift. So get rid of the debt. Seriously, get rid of the debt. Because it will be, it will be the, the choke collar of the new rulers when we deal with this. It absolutely will. Make sure you can feed yourself for 90 days. Feed, clothe, take care of yourself for 90 days with no outside assistance. That's, that's your minimum goal. An absolute absolute bottom line minimum goal is 30 days. I think that it is a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the roots of our nation that the average American isn't minimally 30, 30 days self-sufficient in their home. And I don't mean 30 days like I'm still breathing. I mean 30 days like, okay, now, now we're going to have to ration. We should have a minimum 30 days self-sufficiency, but you guys need a minimum 90. When reality sets in, 
These ideas that the whole nation will plummet into chaos and they'll be throwing people in FEMA camps and it'll be the gulags and all, it's just fanciful bullshit. Your government has no interest in throwing you in a gulag. They have an interest and you continuing to be stupid and dumb and do whatever they tell you to right where you are as long as you pay your taxes and contribute either by taking or giving. They don't care if you're on the dole or feeding the dole as long as you're doing it. After the shift, there'll be a new dynamic, but they won't care if that's where they want you. That's where they want you. So understand that dynamic. And understand that in every society, even feudal Japan that we talked about yesterday, there were places where the peasant could do very well if that peasant had an eye on the prize and didn't lay himself down with debt. You know, my favorite founder, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, what plagued him his whole life, even though he was so against it, was debt. Couldn't pull it off. That's what ruined, you know, at the end. I don't know if most people know this, Thomas Jefferson basically died penniless. His estate was sold, I think, the week he died. But many of the, the slaves that he kept, he was a slave owner. I mean, I can't apologize for him for that. But the slaves that were on his plantation were probably better cared for than most. Again, that doesn't, that doesn't make it any better. But he did at least try to keep members of the same family units together and everything. And he feared that one of the reasons he said he didn't free all his slaves in his writings was that in the society he was in, there would be no place for them to go. And they just end up back as slaves or somewhere else, broken up. His greatest fears came to pass because he couldn't manage his finances. If it can happen to Jefferson, it can happen to all of us. Not that we're slave owners. I, don't, I think it's a blight on our country forever. But we can't not talk about it. We can't pretend it wasn't there. You know, Just like we talked about fuel Japan, I don't think it's a good thing to make people live in, in 9 by 20 foot single rooms with a full family. But they did it, and we can learn from it. So we can learn from our own mistakes, successes, and failures in this nation, both the things that are a blight and things that are shining examples. And we can learn from the weaknesses of our greatest. And debt killed Jefferson's legacy in some ways. I mean, what, what made him survive was his accomplishments were so incredible, they countered his failures. And they still dog him to this day. People know the man died penniless. People point out, uh, he was the author of the, great, uh, the greatest documents of all time, but he owned slaves. See, that's, that's another lesson there, isn't it? And we need to clean ourselves of anything that will hold us back before this thing implodes. And if you can be 90 days self-sufficient when it implodes, you'll get through the peak. Because all of this explosion will be short-termed. It really will be. People can only riot for so long. I mean, people look at riots and go, look at how that's going. But the reality is they can only riot for so long because they'll destroy the area that they're in, they'll get cordoned off, and they'll get hungry, they'll get tired, and they'll get thirsty, and they'll have to comply. You can't riot forever because if there's, riots don't produce anything. They're consumers. It's a giant consuming mob. And no, they're not going to go into the suburbs and loot everybody's houses because they'll get their ashes shot in this country, and that's a fact. So there'll be this acute uprising, this acute shortage, and then some kind of heavy-handed boot, you know, jack-booted thug of government will come in and suppress it. Some of that will be necessary, and some of that will be a dark cloud coming down on our nation. Because when you have people rioting and burning a city down, you gotta put that down. You know, you do. 
Which is why people will do it in the first place that you, you would think would be, you know, not aligned with the oppressive power of the state because they know you can't let a city burn. But then that will be used as an excuse. And what you don't want to be as that shift occurs, and it finally will when this happens, is someone with your hand out in need. You want to be somebody with your hand out strongly above a hand in need helping. Because when two hands come together that way, the hand that does the giving is always above the hand that does the receiving. And if you don't want to be under somebody's thumb, you can't be under their hand. And you have to be able to stand when this happens. That's the only way you won't be sucked in to this new dynamic. And you'll continue to live as a free man. I'm not saying there won't be challenges. I'm not saying it will be utopia. But I'm saying there's going to be a new class structure at the end of this. And a big part of it is going to be people that can exist, that can exist without the aid and help of a government that's not really there to aid you or help you because it's not run by the people. It's run by the corporatocracy and the plutocracy. That's where we're headed. And what I want to finish with, because I see it all the time, this is not capitalism. This is not capitalism at work. This is not the way a capitalist society works. In a capitalist society, anybody can compete. In our society, it's almost impossible to compete in many markets. Just try to, try to start a business selling lemonade or baking cookies and see how much is in your way. That's not a capitalist system. When this occurs, they will tell you it's a failure of capitalism. They're already saying it. It's not. It's a failure of liberty-loving Americans to fight for individual rights and for the ideals of capitalism for almost a 100 years now. That's what it is. It's a failure of the people. And there's a remnant, true patriots. A patriot is not somebody that waves a flag whenever we go to war for whatever reason and says, I support troops. That does not make you a patriot. A patriot is someone that knows the history of their nation, the good and the bad, and knows the true ideals of their nation and stands for them in good times and bad. And it's going to be up to this patriotic remnant When this shift comes to stand, I think that this horrible idea just bought you a couple years. If so, if I'm right, make use of it. And if I'm wrong, in let's say a good way, if it's five years, you won't resent two years of getting ready and doing it the right way. Because the way that we talk about here will help you thrive If by some miracle, if by some grace of God, this nation is restored before it falls, you will do better. You will do better with this methodology than you will do if you stay with consumer-minded bullcrap. Because just to be restored, just to be restored will require a dynamic shift in the economy. And if it falls, which anybody that can do math would tell you it's far more likely, It's the only way that you're going to thrive going forward and ensure the opportunities that you want for your children and your grandchildren. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way